Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Happy New Year to everyone listening and especially to my two co-hosts. We have from Houston, the Reverend Sarah Condon wearing her collar, which means yeah. she's probably just been to a hospital or a hospice or a bedside. Or both. Or some- <laughs> <Or> both. <laughs> and from the snowy banks of Astoria, Queens, the doctor, Todd Brewer, my good friend and longtime contributor to Mockingbird filling in for uh, Rucker, uh, Rector, Rucker, Jan <laughs> Heyman, who's in Utah, I believe, at the moment. Todd, welcome to the show. It can be quite as interesting as RJ, but I'll... Well, that's a, it's a low Rutger bar. Jan so. is very interesting. So. <laughs> a very low bar. In fact, that's the real reason why we put him on as a third host. Well, it is, it is, uh, is it is bomb Genesis is Genesis bomb. I, I've been, there's all sorts of new weather terminology for what's going on in the Northeast, Todd. What's it like up there? I, I, it's a little surreal. Todd, you have for the past, I don't know, it's seven, eight years now you have composed our top theology books of the year post, which always gets kind of an embarrassing amount of traffic and embarrassingly good, meaning people really want to know what we think are the best theology books, which I'm flattered by, but also I'm just so glad that you're the one that does it with the PhD and not me and certainly not Sarah. Mm-mm. So <laughs> Definitely not. But I would love to hear from you about what sort of a couple of the ones you decided to highlight this year. Tell us, what do you got? So I do New Testament stuff by trade. So a lot of my favorites tend to be New Testament stuff. So I'll talk about a couple of those. And definitely top two, Susan Eastman's Paul and the Person and Stephen Chester's Reading Paul with the Reformers. There hasn't been a really interesting work on Pauline anthropology since Boltmann and Kazemann, basically, except for a few kind of forays mm. by Trolls Enberg Peterson, but he's crazy. So <laughs> here is- Tell us how you really um, feel, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he's wonderful. Basically. Yeah, so the Paul in the Person is basically a kind of a way of mediating between Boltmann and Kazemann, for that matter. We are kind of social animals to kind of harken back to that really old David Brooks book. The things that we choose to be a part of are really determinative for our identity. And so she talks about kind of toxic matrix systems, which are kind of infected by sin. And conversely, the kind of I-thou relationship between God and the individual and self kind of embodied within a loving community of the church, ideally. I love it. She does some kind of social science stuff in it and some psychology and philosophy, and it's really interdisciplinary in a way, which is kind of marvelous. So if Sarah's been at the hospice and the hospital and (laughs) everywhere else today, what does Dr. Eastman's book, how would you summarize it for her and what she's trying to do? Don't you love it when, when we speak for you, oh, Sarah? That's a great, yeah. No, I should just not talk. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm curious. I think it's a good question, right? Because we hear about these books when we're in church ministry. And uh, one of a, fr- a friend of Mockingbird, Stu Shelby, will often say, like, I have all, he's like, I have all these books on my shelf, but I don't have the time to read them, which I appreciate his honesty because I think that's every person in church ministry. So it's like, yeah, I think it's a great question. What's yeah. in it? 
that's honestly the kind of thing that Susan Eastman's trying to get at. So a lot of what she's trying to do is flesh out the kind of interpersonal dynamic and relations of what that means. So for the hospital, you're going and you're trying to create a kind of person-to-person experience of non-judgment and love. Now that's, I mean, that's a very apt description of like, you know, hospital chaplaincy. That's why it's overwhelming sometimes because you have to bring both those things to the table. How this works on the ground is kind of a transfer from different relational systems, ideally found in the church. The mm-hmm. traditional Protestant answer for that would be the sacraments and the preaching. You can have really good preaching, but if, if you have like backbiting and, you know, faulty kind of communal structures, it undermines the preaching itself. Which is what we find in Paul. Like, why does Paul freak out about table fellowship with Gentiles? Because Peter is not walking in accordance with the truth of the gospel. Uh, I love uh, that. I totally agree. I was just having a conversation with a colleague the other day about how, like, both those things had to be possible. So I definitely want to read this. That's awesome. I remember talking to a guy who was doing one of his, like, hospital chaplaincy internship, and they were told they could do one of those things, but they couldn't do the other, you know, meaning they could come in and they could be completely silent, but they could not under any circumstances mention the name Jesus unless the person had already said it themselves. And so, I mean, I think rightly so, he felt quite handcuffed. It's like, what am I to bring these people? But I think they were maybe overcorrecting because it is important not to come in there and treat these people as a project and as not just sit there and listen, but to lead with one does not mean to omit the other, right? Yeah. I mean, mean, yeah. You know, when I was doing full-time chaplaincy, it's like, I mean, you never knew what kind of room you were going to walk to. I mean, it's Texas, so it was a lot of Christians, but... You know, we also have a pretty big Muslim population, pretty big Jewish population and, you know, people who aren't religious. And But that doesn't mean that, you know, I don't bring Jesus into the room. I mean, that doesn't mean that that's not mm. a huge part of what's happening there. It just means it like, doesn't get said in the same way sometimes. I always think about sure. Ash Wednesday was the day that I had to stop being a hospital chaplain. I had to go on maternity leave because I started to go into labor because we had to ash 1,500 foreheads in one day. And that's because everybody wanted ashes, even people who aren't Christian. So it's fascinating. Hospitals are weird places. So Dave asked me to come up with a recommendation and I have a non-theological one and then a theological one because I don't honestly read a ton of theology books. Dun, dun, dun. So (laughs) I loved, and we put it in our, I guess, what did we put on our Christmas list? I think we put it on the Mockingbird Christmas list. Nadja Spiegelman's I'm Supposed to Protect You from All This. I know it's not like a religious book, but everyone should read it. It's so good. Feel free to edit this out, but I think everyone should read it, especially if you're a mother or a daughter. But even from the standpoint, I know this will sound wacky, but from pastoral ministry and family dynamics, I kept thinking of how many times, you know, we'll have a funeral and there'll be so much crap that rises to the top between siblings and um, between, mm. you know, a sibling and a new spouse of the deceased. And it's so much about memory and the way that people remember things differently and the way that people hold on to certain parts of memory differently. So I know it seems like a wacky book to recommend, but I loved it. And Spiegelman's father wrote Mouse, I think one of the first graphic novels about the Holocaust in the late 80s. So anyway, it's excellent. The other book I was going to point to, which I think was also on Todd's list, I know he made the list, is Chad Bird's Your God is Too Glorious. I think it's just... That one just came out. Night Driving is what we put on. Chad has dropped two books on us within like six months. And I asked him about it and he said that 
it was because of a publishing yeah. thing. But uh, it's excellent. Your God is too it's glorious. So good. You know, when Nick Lannon spoke in D.C. at the conference this past fall, and I still, Nick Lannon should write a book because he has a profound gift for really applying scripture in a way that makes you, it just makes me want to preach better when I hear him speak. Mm. It becomes accessible, but it also is like unapologetically, I don't know if academic's the right word, but well thought out. I mean, you know, he he spends time in the word to borrow a phrase from every Presbyterian woman I know. But I feel like Chad Bird does that really, really well. And your God is too glorious. I mean, I feel like my whole like seminary training, there was all this sort of stuff about like finding God in the mundane. And, you know, who's the monastic figure? I can't remember if it was a man or a woman who said like, you know, you find God amongst the pots and pans or something. Do you guys know that quote? They loved that quote at Yale, you know, like... Mm, it's it's crickets. I mean, it sounds like it's a just, quote. People, it was use. just like you know. I was always like, "Do you like? Have you guys done dishes for a family? Like, it kind of sucks." And I feel like Chad Bird gets what that actually means—that God is in the mundane and not just like by us raising up these like domestic practices that no one likes to do, but actually like in the rough parts of our life. So anyway, night driving is excellent. I'm loving your God is too glorious. So that's my recommendation. Chad's going to be with us in New York this year. He I think he's going to be our chaplain, but I got to figure oh, that awesome. out. Oh, awesome. Cool. Yeah. I mean, Alan Jacobs is going to be there. We heard this week that Fleming Rutledge is coming back to be with, to do a sort of a live conversation. But we've got some other invites out, which I'm super pumped about, but we'll keep people updated about that. My recommendation, if I had one recommendation that hasn't been covered already, it's tough because I think the thing that impacted me the most this year was I did finally read A Secular Age by Charles Taylor. And I read James Smith's How Not to Be Secular. And in in a world, (laughs) in a world where there are so many narratives, you know, narratives, that's the great buzzword, but it's true. Everyone is selling a narrative and telling a narrative and I am and you are and we all are. But the ability to sort of stand behind a lot of the narratives or at least to talk about where the various ones came from, how when people say things like, you know, when they sort of ridicule belief in God as something that's painfully obvious. It's like, how did that get to be obvious? You know, what kind of assumptions are they going on? I found that to be personally, not just intellectually interesting, I found it to be personally helpful to me as someone publicly identified with their faith, as someone trying to navigate the same waters as everyone else, but also having to field questions about the reality of God, not just the sort of being able to identify a few of the factors informing how people even begin to think their framework for thinking about God in the beginning was really helpful to me. And it it sort of exposed some of my own. I recommend that book. And if people don't want to read the whole thing, just read James Smith's commentary. I mean, I think on a more practical level, Russell Brand's recovery book was really phenomenal. And again, for anyone who's actually interested in the God question, not grace versus law or theology of the cross, but how can I believe in God when that seems to me to be so contrary to what I see in front of me? Read Russell's book, because what he's really doing is he's just Mm -hmm. saying, go to an AA meeting. If you need to know where God is, just go to an AA meeting and you'll Mm -hmm. find him there. You'll find healing. You'll find people who cannot account for it, who stop trying to think about it in terms of plausibility, who are basically just saying, I was blind, but now I see. I tried everything. I know that my own power failed me. And he's also like, you know, he's Russell Brand. So it's full of so many incredible one-liners. In justifying our misery, we recommit to it. He says at one point, he talks about AA as a community assembled around the mutual wound. Mm. You know, isn't that a great description of the church? Yeah. 
he says things about, you know, we do not choose between program and no program. We choose between a conscious program and the unconscious program that operates us by default. Mm. Later, he says, what I used to think of as happiness was merely distraction from pain. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, 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 it cuts close to the bone in all the best possible ways. And it's just not mincing words. He's saying that there's reason for our a lot of our problems, there's a spiritual one. And God is real and God is right here. And God is who you need to save you. And he's not talking in Christian terms, but he's not far from them, just like all AA is. So I, I recommend that to people. It's also, it's really funny. So books are behind us. New year. Sarah, what's your headline? New year, uh, same God. Yeah, what's exactly. the, new year. New you old. New year, new me. Just you. kidding. New year, same me. <laughs> just the same as I was just a few days ago. The Times ran something by Farhad Manju, whose state-of-the-art column says, expect 2018 to be more sane. Sorry, it's not going to happen. Sarah, you almost could have written this, frankly. He said, people seem to have a latent, hopeful sense that things are going to calm down, that we're on the cusp of a more normal news cycle. I suspect that's wrong. Chaos is, quote, the new normal. The apprehension you feel every time you get a notification on your phone, the fear that you don't know what fresh horror it could bring isn't an overreaction, but an adaptation. There's another complication to fold into the chaos. Technology isn't stopping. The pace of technological change is in many cases too fast for any one of us to comprehend or get used to. As a result, just as the world seems to get its head around one new force unleashed by tech, another comes along to discombobulate our efforts to respond to it. And he gets to the very end, he says, I do think people are now realizing that the world is less predictable than we thought it was. This is Nate Silver he's quoting. But in some ways, that's just a return to normal. Yeah. So a sobering, but I think um, Condon-esque yeah. take on the new yeah. year. You had mentioned something to me, Sarah, the other day about this phrase, the new yeah. normal, and how much you love it and find oh it endearing God. and try to work it into conversation as much I as you hate can. It so much. I mean, like people have been using it. I was like, as soon as the hurricane hit Houston, people were like, it's the new normal. It's the new normal. We're just in the new normal now. And like yesterday when I was getting my kids into the house and everything smells like paint thinner because our neighborhood was hit so hard by the hurricane, you know, everyone's got the Harvey hack still like people are really sick from like breathing mm. this stuff in that's still around us all the time that I have to like try not to think about it. And the one bright spot was that we have enough construction workers now that they have boom boxes with them. So there was all this like Mexican restaurant music just blasting and my kids immediately started to dance as they got out of the car. And I was like, well, that's a new normal I'll accept. You know what I mean? Like Mexican <laughs> restaurant outside of my house is not like the worst thing. So it's the phrase that we've used since this happened to comfort ourselves. And I find no comfort in it. I don't think anyone else does either. The new year always pisses me off, which means that I always piss other people off. Because, I mean, there's this notion that like, it's the same, like everything's died starts on Monday. Like everything's going to be different. You know, like once it's 2018, like I'm finally going to like do all, take care of myself. I mean, it's fine to like want health, whatever. But part of it is just like, we're all trying to escape death, right? Is the one thing. And I feel like it just points us headlong into like death and disappointment because February comes and it's like 95% of the people don't keep their resolutions anyway. It's a bummer in Houston because a lot of people are like, man, I can't wait to say goodbye to 2017. And I'm like, I wish, I wish it was 2017 that caused this hurricane. 
unfortunately, it was a whole lot more than that. And all that stuff is still with us, you know? So I don't know. I'm the worst. It's just not, it's, this is just not my season. Like, you know, it's not like St. Patrick's Day. Great. Like the new year, I'm just like, I'm going to bed at 1030. I'm not putting up with this foolishness. Like I watched Mariah Carey because I love her. And last year she was crazy. And this year she was crazy. And that was awesome. But like past that, I'm just, I'm not here for New Year's. <laughs> <laughs> I I got I missed that. I heard she drank. She had just needed hot tea with yes. lemon in the middle of the performance. What what went on? Last year was really the best because she was like, you know, she's so scantily clad. Like that's her emote, which is awesome. Love it. And she's out there scantily clad, and like, you know, she was lip syncing, and the mics weren't working. And then she's like, she's like, who's in charge? And there was like that moment of recognition, like she was kind of in charge. And I was like, that is every preaching nightmare I've ever had. Oh, you know what I mean? So. <laughs> Mariah Carey's the best thing about New Year. They should have her every year. Like when she's 90, I want her wheeled out on the stage in New York City. Like that's the deal. So what do you guys think? I do like the New Year in terms of at least like a windshield wiper almost, just wiping stuff away for a little bit. Not that more is not coming down the line, but to at least get a one day off where I'm sort of thinking about what's the next phase. And yet you do see this sort of inflated anthropology just going nuts. And when people say new normal, what's more healthy? Is it to say that this is going to happen always or to say, it doesn't sound like resignation as much to me as, you know, if you're able to say this is really bad, or like, I really hope this isn't normal. This doesn't feel normal to me at all. If, you know, people hate that word, but it's certainly referencing something. How do you, you know, balance expectation of sin and darkness with hopefulness that God is alive and at work in the world, and yet without making it a way of basically shutting people up. Well, this is the new normal. Get used to it. That sounds like what you're hearing when people say the new normal. They're sort of like, just stop complaining, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know. I feel like as Christians, our New Year's Eve, I know there's a liturgical one, but let's be real. Our New Year's (laughs) Eve is like Christmas Eve. Like our New Year's Eve is like this savior. Like this is the beginning of the clean slate coming into the world. So my New Year's Eve this year, I was really sick and I took a full dose of NyQuil, which is never a good idea. And my husband came into the room after having done five services at one o'clock in the morning. And he said, Annie can't breathe. That's our three-year-old. And we had to call an ambulance and he went on the ambulance and my friend Joseph, I'm not kidding. That's his name. Took a car seat to the ER for me at 2 a.m., sat there with them because Joseph said, and I'm quoting here, what kind of a Joseph would I be if I didn't help a sister out on Christmas Eve? And he brought Annie and Josh back home. And for me, that's actually what a Christian clean slate looks like, right? It looks like all our suffering met with this unexpected redemption. That's a new year I'll get on board with. I mean, because that's reality. I think that's for me is the hard thing is like, I'm not trying to sound like dark or pessimistic that life is hard, but like life is hard and we need to be rescued from it. You know, if you were to wake me up in the middle of the night and ask me for what I thought the year was going to look like, it would sound a lot like, in fact, like this Farhad Manju guy. I don't see the distraction, the addiction, the smartphone sort of distractibility stuff getting any better. I think social media really does have us tied around an axle. Some of these problems are fixable just on a sort of a surface level. Some of them less so is one of these things where it feels like it's probably going to have to get worse before it gets better. Though again, he scared the pants off of me specifically when he says things are going so fast that there's no chance to even sort of respond. And then how do we as a, it was funny, the net neutrality thing came up 
you know, obviously everyone was very up in arms about it on the internet. Surprise, surprise. A couple of people asked me about it. Hey, what do you think it means for Mockingbird? And I said, I don't know. My view is that the internet is so toxic that any kind of change might, might be good. I don't know. How could it can't get much worse? Now, that's probably a very easy thing for you to say, Dave, because uh, I don't really even, I've kind of avoided even looking deeper into it because I'm so scared. But there's a little bit of that. I mean, I think that for people who are involved in church work or Christianity or religion, there's both what feels like hostility that I've sort of run into, especially on social media. So I don't know if it's contrived or just extreme there, but there's also enormous hope as sort of people get so run down and exhausted by the demands and the pain of what it means to be alive in 2018. I really, I do have some, uh, at least I'm grateful to be situated in a church and institution that is larger than just me and does proclaim something of comfort and joy that acknowledges the darkness, but also has sort of points to the light. And at the dawn of 2018, I certainly, there's no other place I'd rather be, I guess I'd say, which mm. kind of leads into the final piece. I mean, Todd, did I cut you off? Did you want to say something? Yeah, I was going to say the, um, you mentioned Charles Taylor before about narratives and much a kind of counter narrative to the, I have to admit it's getting better. It's getting better all the time. You know, technology is our savior, great, bigger and better and more awesome. Apparently it could just be more chaotic. Yeah. There you have it. Thanks, Todd. (laughs) Thanks for sharing. Um, I take your point. I take your point. I think we have both a real opportunity as well as just that we don't have to wallpaper over the darkness that you see and that every time these, these, these narratives, in fact, that's what this next one is about. And it's about church specifically. It's from some symposium on a magazine called The Point, which I wasn't actually aware of, but they seem pretty great out of Chicago magazine about sort of questioning big ideas, philosophical um, thought, and it seems to have some kind of Christian bent to it, just based on who they've asked to write. They have a whole symposium called What is Church For? One of the people that responded was James Chapel, who's a church historian at Duke, I believe. And he writes about the common narrative about religion that we deal with, that certainly Taylor unpacks. He says, once upon a time, the world made sense and the church was the antechamber to that meaningful universe. We disenchanted moderns, however, are forced to make our own way. He says, sociologists, philosophers, and filmmakers alike have peddled some version of this story over the past half century. This that connotes lack of church or secularity with maturity. You add a value judgment to it, in other words, that is very irresistible to people who want to think of themselves as mature. But it's just a narrative, it turns out. He says, over the past 15 years, a number of personal experiences have led me to question any story that relegates the church to the sacral past. Before moving to my current home in Durham, North Carolina, I became involved with Mary House, a shelter affiliated with the Catholic Worker Movement in New York City. There, I saw people grappling with moral questions in a way that was more imaginative and searching than what I had encountered on university campuses. He uses Philip Larkin's poem about church going, where he encounters an empty church that's basically a mausoleum, not even a museum, with the churches that he are around that are just bustling with charitable activity. Churches all across the spectrum that are just doing all sorts of incredible things, even if they're not preaching anything remotely related to the forgiveness of sins. He says, the media excitement over the rise of the nuns, especially among millennials, primarily evinces a hope that we are finally turning into the secular country many elites have imagined themselves to be living in all along. But the persistence of religious practice is at least as important to understand as its modest decline in popularity. Many moralizing institutions like universities and the media have suffered dramatic collapses in public confidence. 
while group public rituals like bowling leagues have almost completely disappeared. That's what the hillbilly elegy is about. Yet about half of Americans attend some kind of religious service at least once a month, and even more claim to pray on a daily basis. When it comes to the institutions of American public life that remain sacred, church going is slightly less popular than voting, and slightly more popular than the Super Bowl. The decline and fall account of church history legitimates particular voices while discounting others. It presumes that the cynical modern city is more intellectually or morally advanced than the putatively God-soaked hollers of the Trumpian heartland. But it is simply not the case that secularization proceeds apace with modernization. And then he quotes Karl Marx, and he talks about, you know, Marx's quote about religion being the opiate of the masses, and saying that, you know, people forget that Marx took opium all the time. And then he also called religion, quote, the heart of a heartless world, predicting that the church would not disappear until capitalism did. It provided the church... Karl Marx knew, it provided too much spiritual material sustenance for too many people ravaged by a system that created far more needs than it could fulfill. Now, I'll break there. There's a couple more things I want to read, but when you guys read this essay, what what sprang to your minds? What, what came to mind, the number of self-help books I see people reading is just, I used to take a kind of cynical view of what this was like, you know, the kind of profusion of self-help books is something of a indictment of the genre itself, but they're treating self-help books just like the church treats scripture or their devotions or, you know, reading the Mockingbird blog, uh, some external voice, which gives them some sort of compass. And so while the church um, has sort of seen a kind of population decline, that doesn't mean that we're not becoming religious. I mean, I was interested, and you may read some of this stuff in a minute, but sort of like the idea of like, what is the church going to become? You know, like, what does this mean for the church? I mean, we are losing people, not, I think, as frighteningly as everyone wants to say, but his points were very good. But what is the church going to become? You know, because my husband and I are both ordained. This is like our like pillow talk, you know, like what's going to happen to the church, you know, <laughs> the church at large, what will happen to the church? The weird thing to me is that the churches that I see that are not asking those questions that are really actually healthy and they feel like good places and full places are the ones who are just doing old school church, which is kind of kind of crazy. But I mean, like the places that people still feel like they can go and they can hear the gospel and they feel like they can go and, you know, I mean, I, I think some of the best churches reflect some of the best things about AA, right? They feel like they can go and they can be broken and honest. And for us personally in Houston, at my husband's church, one of the most transformative things for the community, which has been a hard thing, was the hurricane because you know, everybody shows up in their pajamas basically after something like that happens. And we've seen growth from that, which is really interesting. And it's not because we're doing something like wacky on the side. It's just like people know that they're going to show up and they're going to be loved and they're going to hear the gospel. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, that that kind of, it kind of led me in that direction, but I appreciate what he says. And it actually brings me some comfort that there are all these other institutions that have just completely fallen. And yet people mm-hmm. are still showing up at church. Yeah, it's... It, I thought his take on it was beautiful, though I also think where he lands is that the church is the last place for any kind of moral education in life, meaning for the law. I clearly don't see it that way. I think the church is for the gospel, I mean, for the law and the gospel, but he, he Ain't says- one without um, the other. That, <laughs> yeah, says, there's something to his needing to see past the narrative that he's telling himself that makes him or academic elites sound sophisticated. 
And some of the times when I see the church, when I read about church commentary, all I hear is psychology. And that's maybe not helpful. Again, it puts me behind the narrative, allows me to sort of be patronizing slightly. And yet if 2017 taught me anything, it was that you simply cannot overestimate the baggage people have with religion, especially with evangelical legalism. And it's funny that he clearly grew up in a Lutheran context and was attracted to the Catholic thing. And I've seen that take out so many times um, that it's, you know, and I, I find myself attracted in that direction too, because there seems to be a deeper comfort with somehow the falling short of the ideal, or they're a little less, uh, if you're a Baptist and you're not walking the walk, right. you're not a Baptist, you know, if you're a Catholic you're just showing up. You know, you, you can call yourself a Catholic in any number of situations. Now, now, someone who's Catholic might say, hey, you don't know what you're talking about. And clearly, I have my own hangups with the Roman church. But I don't think it's a mistake that he sees hope there, where people can kind of continue to just be human beings as well as receive the grace of God in a way that they don't see in evangelicalism. And, you know, I think it was Bentley Hart or someone like that said that American evangelicalism is the greatest atheism producing machine the world has ever seen. And that's very unfair because, I, I mean, I, I know a lot of wonderful evangelical churches. Some would consider the church where I am that way, and some would consider it not nearly enough that way. But I do see increasing evidence of that, that people brought up in that kind of legalistic, moralistic situation is like trudging through quicksand the rest of your life. Someone was asking me like why they found it so hard to go to church. And I said, well, tell me about your background. And she described a very heavy dose of the law without the gospel. And I said, well, of course you're having a hard time going to church. You're walking with a you know 300 pound burden on your back. And what I'm trying to say is whenever I read about this, I, see, I hear a lot of psychology. I hear a lot of psychology in this guy too. And I see it in myself. What I found really touching and where it went beyond for me, beyond just saying, hey, guess what? There's this whole thing called the Roman Catholic Church that you've never heard about. To a degree that still surprises me, adulthood involves less an escape from the past than a series of perilous convoluted returns to it. I had imagined that historical research on the church would help me to mature beyond my childhood. Instead, in those long and lonely hours in the archives, I was trying to scrape away the barnacles of nostalgia that had accreted around my own memories of the church. Once they had been removed, the institution's meaning appeared in a new light. Just because I was a child does not mean the experience I had there was a childish one. Just because I was ignorant does not mean that others were. I dimly recall now how debates about Somali refugees, public grappling with alcoholism and mental illness. I remember canned food drives and volunteer work. I remember a place where imperfect people gathered in an attempt to make sense of an imperfect world, where old words and old music combined to create something like beauty. Some people can find these things in secular places, but many cannot. And the list of secular institutions in which racially and economically diverse populations come together to confront moral questions with any degree of seriousness is not a long one. He talks about the church as being a serious house, like the last serious house. And I think if it's not enough for it to be a serious house, I do think that, as Taylor says, the transcendent is what people are actually looking for, not a really great community activist group, because you can get more followers if you lose the Jesus talk. Trust us. Um, <laughs> trust us. <laughs> trust us. <laughs> I find it to be deeply humble to say that, in fact, the experiences you have as a child are not necessarily childish ones, and that Life is almost a return to the things you knew before all the narratives that you have to tell about yourself took over your life and your understanding and hijacked any of your sensitivity to God and the way that he is present in life. So maybe that's too many words, but that's where I land on this, that the church is these things, yet it's also the place where we hear 
the word of forgiveness and the crucified Savior. And that's really the real key. Well, you know, when we talk about this whole idea of, you know, childhood, when we didn't have these narratives about ourselves and we didn't have these things that we had to live up to, well, you know, for a brief moment in church, I mean, we forget it almost immediately, right? Which is the work of Mockingbird is to remind us. But for this brief moment, we actually get we get to at least realize that those are narratives we're telling ourselves about ourselves, right? Like we can't maybe lose them, but we can at least recognize them as such. Like that's church. So, Amen. Guys, thank you for talking this week. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with RJ and all sorts of other fun, you know, chaotic things to speak about. But Todd, thanks for being with us. And thank you for listening, everyone. We wish you honestly a very happy new year and we hope we're surprised and we know we can be surprised and we at least pray for more surprises thank you also to everyone who was so generous supporting mockingbird the end of the year we are just very excited about what the new year holds mockingbird 2.0 as some of you heard about and we continue to come at you on the website and on here in a couple weeks so happy new year happy new year guys happy new year happy new year Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. <laughs>